You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi, I'm Steph Tiller. On today's episode, Alex Bristow speaks to Brigadier General Linnell Latendra, the Dean of Faculty at the US Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. They talk about the long-standing defence collaboration between the United States and Australia and how the foundation of this begins with the exchange of cadets. They also discuss how the culture has changed in the Air Force over time and how a social media hashtag is helping inspire the next generation of Air and Space Force leaders. I'm very happy to be here with Brigadier General Linnell Latendra. You are the Dean of the Faculty at the US Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs in the in the US. I was joking in our roundtable previously that if I tried to read out your CV, it would probably take uh, the whole of this podcast, so um, I won't, but let's just say you've had a very glittering career. And for those of you, our listeners, who aren't familiar with what the US Air Force Academy is, um, I, I understand that you're in in command of a a 750-person faculty, and you have 4,000 cadets, undergraduates, studying across 32 academic disciplines. So really impressive facility that you're managing, even though your budget, I I believe, of over over $350 million, which I'm very envious of. Aspie's a slightly smaller outfit. But uh, Linnell, thank you very much for coming into Aspie to, uh, to talk to us. And perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about what brings you to Australia. Well, absolutely, Alex, and thanks for the invitation uh, to to come to Aspie and to to be part of this podcast. Uh, Being here in Australia is is really an opportunity for us to continue the amazing collaboration that we have between the U.S. and and Australia. That extends uh, at the the foundation of of both of our defense forces with exchanges of our cadets. Uh, So each semester we, in in our fall, your spring uh, semester, uh, we uh, do a cadet exchange where we have uh, Australian cadets from AFTA uh, who come and study at the Air Force Academy. And likewise, uh, uh, we send two very lucky young men and women here uh, to AFTA. But also, as you're familiar, we send some cadets uh, during to, to conduct some research uh, during our summer uh, term. And and it's that, that that brought me here to ask me on how do we not only continue to that collaboration from an education and a research perspective, not just with our cadets, but also then with uh, with our faculty on on broader issues uh, facing both of our countries. Yes, and, and uh, we were very happy to have three cadets from your academy here in what we call a winter, but you call a summer. Yes, um, we, we sometimes forget to mention that to our cadets, uh, that they're coming in the winter of Australia, but... Uh, Still a bit warmer than a winter in Colorado, I'm sure. But um, well, I mean, your your own career, as I've mentioned, it, it, it has been long and glittering, and, and you've you've moved through various different professions, including uh, military law. And your background originally, I think you graduated from the academy with a Bachelor of Science in Astronautical Engineering. This is a, an era, obviously, where there's been a lot of focus on this country, Australia, and 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 uh, our partner countries, including the United States, maintaining that that competitive edge in these critical technologies. And this is obviously set in a, a an era of geostrategic competition, with notably with China. So I, I just wondered if you've you've got any thoughts about the importance of science education in in, in military education, and uh, any thoughts about how we do maintain this competitive edge. <laughs> 
Absolutely. You know, a, a firm foundation in STEM is is imperative uh, for that future fight. It's imperative to continue to promote uh, peace and stability in our world. One of the things that allows me great confidence in looking at that future is because I get to interact with young people every day. And to see the work that they're doing, the innovative spirit that they have, the real world problems that they are solving, particularly in a defense construct. And they're leveraging uh, not only a rich, from the U.S. Air Force Academy's perspective, a rich foundation across science and engineering principles, but then they get to unleash that innovative spirit to go and solve those problems. I actually think that we have, I have less concern about developing innovators because innovators uh, innovate regardless of what you do. Uh, The area where I think we need some work work globally is in how do we develop and educate leaders of innovation, individuals who are willing and able to accept risk, to empower that innovative spirit, that understanding that innovation is going to be messy and that you're going to have to fail forward. That's the aspect of innovation that I think we collectively need to pay more attention to. Very topical. I'm sure you're familiar with Australia's uh, Defence Strategic Review, but trying to find an innovative system that allows us to fail fast is the term that some of my colleagues sometimes use. But you know, learn from those mistakes and and move into uh, practical applications seems to be very much at the forefront of uh, many people's inbox at the moment in the Department of Defence here in Canberra. Uh, just sort of referring back to that geostrategic environment that we're we're in, you know, it's so different now to how it was perhaps in that post-Cold War moment in the 90s. But it's not just the strategic environment that's changed. It's also the institutions that that you've been working in over that time period. Uh, I mentioned your background in military law. I I believe you've been involved in groundbreaking work on the repeal of the don't ask, don't tell policy, which uh, used to apply for LGBTQ plus members of of the military and the Air Force. Do you have any reflections on how things have changed in the the decades you've been in the Air Force, how the culture's changed, and maybe any sense of whether these this groundbreaking work you've done on on for example, repealing don't ask, don't tell, what what that what that's actually meant in terms of recruitment and retention of LGBTQ plus members of the military? Absolutely. I, I think I'll, I'll start with something that hasn't changed. And what hasn't changed is the strategic imperative uh, for us to embrace diversity and inclusion. Uh, we are stronger together, not only as coalition partners, uh, but we are stronger uh, with a more diverse uh, force in order to promote peace and stability in the world than we are uh, without diversity and inclusion initiatives. With respect to the impact that I think the repeal of don't ask, don't tell had, it really allowed us uh, to form those more inclusive teams to ensure that we were capitalizing on the full strength of the citizens in our country, as well as capitalizing on our ability to then uh, partner with uh, countries such as Australia and around the world. What I've seen over, it's hard to believe it's been 12 years since the repeal of, of don't ask, don't tell. What I've seen is that our service members have really begun to embrace what dignity and respect means as a hallmark of service. 
and that as we develop uh, and bring in uh, those diverse teams that build on that foundation of dignity and respect, we then see elevated performance. Uh, we see leaders who know how to capitalize on on the diverse qualities and diverse strengths of teams, and they get better results. And so uh, I believe that every young American, as well as every young Australian, ought to be able to find a way to serve their country and to serve a country in a place and on teams that value them for who they are and the skill sets that they're going to bring to solving those tough problems facing our nation. I think that repeal not of don't ask, don't tell in, in the United States is not only allowed for greater opportunity to recruit, better retention, but also at the end of the day, better teams uh, that uh, are better able to tackle those problems. That's a really excellent point. And it, it, it resonates with other voices we've heard on the podcast series. I recall a, a podcast not too long ago with a Norwegian admiral who I think is the the first woman representative that Norway had sent to the military committee of, of, of NATO. And uh, she was describing, the, you know, in, in NATO, when they're looking at what's going on in in places like Ukraine, there's a sense that having inclusion in your in your military is a, an asymmetric capability advantage. You know, so it's one that actually the Russians are lacking and it partially explains their military failure. So, you know, it's it's the right thing to do, but it's also from, for our capabilities, it's essential that we, we, we're inclusive. My next question is, is pivoting a little bit more onto the information environment. And you have a very active presence on Instagram and, and LinkedIn. And you use this handle across all your, your online media, hashtag Warfighter Scholars, is that correct? That is. Um, can you tell us a little bit more what, I have a, a bit of an inkling what this is because we were discussing it in a roundtable, but for our listeners, please can you tell us a little bit more about this handle and, and why do you use it and who's your target audience? What's, what are you achieving with it? Well, the, the hashtag uh, Warfighter Scholars uh, sums up what we believe our, our mission is on the academic side at the U.S. Air Force Academy, and it's to educate and inspire warfighter scholars who are prepared to lead our Air Force and Space Force. And why warfighter scholars? I don't believe that I'm going to be able to predict the exact technology that is going to be used in future conflict, nor while I might have a strong inkling of who I think the adversary might be, candidly, we've thought that before and we've been wrong. And so the one part, though, of that future fight is that it's going to be fought in a way, fought and won in a way, from the neck up, not the neck down. And so what I mean by that is that we have to be able uh, to not only outthink whoever our future adversary might be, uh, we need to be able to out-innovate, out-strategize. All of that requires the synapses uh, between the ears, and, and, and that is not just a scholarship attribute. But to me, that linkage to the warfighter and warfighter encompasses not only the conflict part, but importantly, warfighter also encompasses the work that we do to avoid such conflict. Uh, 
Uh, Warfighters, first and foremost, ought to be working hard to promote peace and stability across regions, to look for opportunities to deter, and only uh, when such deterrence fails uh, do we do we then resort to being the the execution of violence that the profession of arms is sanctioned by our countries to go and do uh, when such deterrent fails. Uh, so the warfighter scholar uh, hashtag is the charge that I give to our cadets. It's the charge that I give to our faculty to go out and develop to develop members of the and leaders of the profession of arms who can think and who can think differently. You talked that not only is that diversity and inclusion uh, really that that asymmetric uh, uh, capability, but I also think that our thinking ability is an asymmetric capability. So I use that hashtag in in my social media references, uh, not only to encourage uh, both cadets to brag on them a little bit, uh, brag on them to their families. Uh, we know that as we recruit and retain uh, members of our respective defense forces, uh, that uh, we we recruit the member, but we retain the family. And so my social media outlets are, are hopefully an opportunity to let both our cadets as well as their families know how incredibly proud we are of them and of our faculty. Uh, But hopefully my social media accounts are also reaching a broader audience, not only across uh, the United States, but also with our global and and coalition partners, to be aware of uh, the work that we are doing to develop those future leaders. Can I just probe a little bit more on that point? So I I think you were a cadet in the academy in the the 90s, is that right? And I'm sure there are certain aspects of what the academy does that are always consistent. I'm reminded by my colleagues who uh, who know their Klaus fits better than me. Is it the the, the character of war never changes, but um, even if the way it is fought might. But uh, are there any reflections for particularly our younger listeners, whether they're in a military career or not, on drawing on the wisdom you've had and seeing generations come through the academy? You know, what should young people today be sort of uh, focusing on? How can they be effective warfighter scholars? Are there any sort of points to draw out from your experience? Absolutely. First, yes, it was in the 90s, that mid-90s that I was a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy, or as uh, my cadets think, uh, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. It might as well have been so long ago. In terms of uh, what advice I give to young people, whether they're cadets at the Air Force Academy or, candidly, the advice that I gave some of our AFTA uh, cadets that uh, I met, uh, the, the TOs that I met at AFTA yesterday, we need to develop an ability to be a fearless learner. That means that a capability to not only know that there's more to learn, but to be fearless enough to go about it and and to take on new disciplines, overlap and and weaving together of dis- disciplines. I think being a fearless learner also enables you uh, to try new things, 
to fail forward or fail fast, uh, as as you had mentioned uh, before, uh, a willingness to to think about problems through a different lens or a different perspective, and and to try uh, potentially a, a a different solution than maybe has been tried before. It is that fearless learner mentality that I think will go a long way to enabling our young people to solve some of those problems that have been uh, perplexing us and this older generation uh, for quite some time now. Excellent. I think that's a good segue into my next, maybe our last question, subject to time. But I think the Chief of Defence Force here is very clear that Australia is strong because Australia has friends. And one of Australia's most important friends is, of course, the United States, not not Australia's only friend, but certainly a a partnership that Australia cherishes and and an alliance that's essential to Australia. You've been here, obviously, as you say, talking to counterparts in ADFA. And I must admit, until we'd sort of had this session today, I tended to think about those kinds of exchanges going on later in military careers. You know, we have a long running program here with the uh, the U.S. Army War College and and people at uh, in 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 mid career will uh, will often have exchanges. But the do you have any reflections on the importance of allies and partners building those connections, people to people connections? right from the start of careers. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, as you said, oh, we are we are stronger together. Uh, we know that the global peace and stability uh, requires a strong coalition, a strong coalition of those individuals uh, and those countries that are united in um, both our ethics, um, united in our perspective on democracy and, uh, and the importance of freedom. That starts with our young people. And when we kickstart their careers, understanding human conditions in societies, understanding uh, that our similarities and differences are, are a strength, but that it's a strength only if we know how to work together, we can only get better over time. And so you mentioned uh, the importance, obviously, of collaboration at more senior levels. And and obviously, that experience and know-how at uh, professional military education exchanges you know, later in one's career are absolutely essential. But what I found is that when we start that collaboration with our young people um, as early as their undergraduate education, not only uh, do they then have have friendships uh, and relationships that will last throughout a career, but they are also able to then look at situations through different lenses and through different perspectives and take with them and build on that collaboration over the course of the career, as opposed to when we instead start at more senior levels, then we look backwards at a career and find all of those missed opportunities. And so I hope, for one, that we are able to continue not only the collaboration that we have started uh, with both AFTA and ASPE at a, at a young cadet level, not just for them to gain friendships and, and understand the value of collaboration, but also for them to start thinking about the tough problems facing our world, uh, facing our respective nations. And recognizing that they have a voice and a thought on how to help solve those problems. When we give them that combination of opportunities 
early in their career, they then build on that throughout their time as leaders in the profession of arms and will only get stronger because of it. That might be all we have time for, but an excellent point to to finish on. And, and please do uh, send us some more of your uh, cadets and more, and and do remind them to to pack their, their woolly sweaters for uh, for the Canberra winter. But uh, thank you very much for coming in today. Well, thank you, Alex. I really enjoyed the conversation. Next up, Daria Impiombardo interviews Irene Feline, the NATO Secretary General's Special Representative for Women, Peace and Security. They discuss the Women, Peace and Security agenda, its role in the online space and NATO's role in advancing the priorities of the agenda. Hi, Irene. Welcome on the ASPI podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are delighted to have such a special guest to talk Women, Peace and Security. Thank you, Daria, for your invitation. I'm very pleased to be here with you today. So you are one of the leading experts in the field and your experience encompasses over 15 years as a peace builder for international organizations and national institutions, including the UN and now obviously NATO. I couldn't possibly list all of the amazing things that you have achieved in your career. But I thought I should mention that you had an instrumental role in establishing and coordinating the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network to increase the number of women involved in in peacemaking, which is so important. And I'm really excited to chat to you about all this today. So the Women, Peace and Security agenda was launched on the 31st of October 2000 with four pillars of participation, protection, prevention, relief and recovery. Now, in your opinion, over 23 years after it was established, what progress do you think has been made and is the agenda still relevant today? Uh, Thank you for this core question. I mean, you really touch upon one of the main problems. Every year at the end of October, uh, the Women, Peace and Security Community comes together across the globe to celebrate this important momentum and to reflect, looking at uh, successes and identifying challenges and project our uh, work ahead. And we have to say that we are in in a very difficult moment right now from a security perspective around the globe. And I think that when the agenda was initially developed with the first resolution 1325, we hope to be in a different stage right now. Many uh, successes have been achieved in the past years, uh, but unfortunately, I have to say that not at the speed we hope. And what is happening right now, we see the, I mean, the war in Ukraine and the conflict between Hamas and Israel, just to name two that are now on the front page and so from our perspective but now that i'm this part of the globe i see you know how things are look at different you know from a security architecture and a geopolitical perspective so many conflict around the globe and challenges in the asian pacific as well we see how this agenda is even more relevant today and how conflicts and wars uh, still affect women and, uh, and girls in a disproportionate way which means that even so, I think that the agenda has reached its advocacy potential. So sometimes we think about developing new resolution. The question is, do we really need a new policy framework of adding more resolution, whereas the gap with implementation is still uh, so uh, wide? I think that the focus has to really 
be put on how to transform our words and commitments in concrete actions from the rhetoric to the reality and see how these actions can be really sustainable and support a long-lasting peace in the world. Yeah, so it was very difficult to see, you know, in the past few years, sort of just, you know, starting with the COVID-19 pandemic, but then also all of these new conflicts breaking out and how that has maybe caused not not a reversal, but uh, a bit of a stall in progress. Do you see maybe also a worsening of the situation in the digital space as well, in, in the way that, you know, not just like terrorist groups, but in general, like also state non-state actors target women online through harassment campaign and, and online violence. Do you think that the WPS agenda has a role in the online space as well? Indeed, I think that's a very important dimension of the contemporary challenges. And uh, we are addressing this also at NATO. And I think that's very relevant across uh, international organizations, but at domestic uh, national levels as well. And looking uh, at identified challenges right now on the agenda and climate change and online violence have been two of the areas that have been identified and also mentioned by the UN Secretary General uh, Guterres during the open debate uh, on the occasion of the anniversary in uh, the Security Council. Exactly because the political space for women is uh, shrinking and not it's caused by the violence offline and online. So I think that collectively we have to look at the agenda as a tool to address those challenges especially because if women are not given the space to participate actively in, uh, in politics, uh, we will never be able to reach this position where then women will be involved during peacemaking, peacebuilding and, um, and conflict management. It is clear facts and, and research demonstrate and write that women cannot be fully integrated in a risk conflict resolution management and then relief and recovery and post-conflict if they have not been part, actually part of the decision-making process during peacetime. The patriarchal structure is what is characterized our society, represents the, the limits uh, and the barriers for women to be more active in, uh, in politics. And this is what we have to look at, how to uh, dismantle this, the patriarchal system and to make sure that women have the right opportunities. The problem is that online, Violence is increasing, and this is why uh, one of the reasons why women decide to step down and to be less involved in politics. So looking at 2024 with main elections happening, and from a NATO perspective, a transatlantic perspective, it's important to see that we will have elections both uh, at the European level and the United States. I think that this is one of the topics that collectively we should uh, look at. And I make this part of my priorities in the coming uh, months to really support the conversation around this. So could you maybe explain a bit more what role do you see NATO playing in that space? NATO has not a real role to play at domestic national level. I mean, we do not interfere with national decisions. But I think that women with positions such as mine have a, a moral and ethical responsibility vis-a-vis uh, -vis other women and sit in a privileged position where I can use my role to advocate. But what I try to do also is to see every topic that is covered by NATO in terms of security, and here we come to cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, uh, 
and uh, uh, technology more generally, how we do integrate the gender perspective. And this is one of the ways in which we do have a role, making sure that all the work that we do across the alliance uh, integrate and include the gender perspective and implement the women, peace and uh, security agenda. The other is that part of my objective is to increase the numbers of women across all security and defense sectors, which includes also diplomacy, but then also more broader politics. So that's very important for me to bring these dimensions together and the elections and the, the political role and the political and the digital violence are elements that will influence the result of the elections. And moreover, I would like to add that we see from uh, the experience of the Russian war against Ukraine, how this information can be gendered and used against the population to influence the perception. And this is very important because this is happening online or via the media. So it's a part of the work and the responsibility of NATO to look at this as part of the security trust. It is really great to hear, I think, from my personal perspective, but also research perspective, that it is on the priority agenda, especially because, as you said, you know, 2024 is set to become really important key year again across the globe. You know, we, we're obviously closely watching the elections in Taiwan on in this side of the world, but the elections in the U.S. will probably have an influence on the regional security architecture as well. So it will be probably closely watched by many groups to see whether we have had any impact or like progress in the space of protecting women online. I just wanted to speak a bit more about your own sort of work, since you mentioned that one of your main goals is that of increasing the role of women and in, in the number of women in peacekeeping and policymaking as well. As I said, one of your key achievements was the establishment of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network. I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit more about that and what impact it has had so far in the Mediterranean. You bring me back to my previous role as part of a civil society. This project was particularly interesting because it's a semi-governmental initiative that the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, developed and implemented in synergy with uh, my organization. I, organization. I founded Women in International uh, Security together with uh, IAI Istituto Affari Internazionali. So we, we made this partnership uh, and with the objective to create a space for women to develop more competences uh, and uh, skills uh, in the field of the mediation and peace building. But especially to not only uh, looking at the competence and the skill development, but to be able to create the space and the opportunity for them to be more visible. Because we started from the assumption that women have a voice and have competences, but the problem is uh, that they lack the opportunities to exercise their role. So moving from fixing the, you know, the state, fixing the women into fixing the system. And this is what we are really uh, learned. Of course, it's much easier to develop trainings. And I have to say that uh, sometimes it is still needed because mediation, for example, is a, is a profession. You don't become a mediator because you want to. Of course, there are some personal skills and attitudes that makes certain person, individuals more adapt 
to this to cover this role. But generally speaking, this is a profession. The same way as being a gender advisor is a profession. It's not because you are a woman that so you are just uh, able to deal with certain aspects or issues because you have to learn and to exercise this as a profession. So this initiative was uh, inspired by similar initiative all across the globe. Uh, Nordic countries in Europe, uh, across the Commonwealth, led by the UK, FEMWISE uh, in Africa, but also in the ASEAN and in Asian Pacific region. And all those network of women came together to try to, to create this, what we call the global alliance, but really to create the synergies between uh, women and the connection with institutions. We had some challenges during the COVID period. It was very complicated because one of the principles was coming together and create, as I said, this space for engaging. And that was been very difficult. But most recently, uh, when I was in New York, I attended some of the event and I, I saw this, how this has become. So we were still there alive and very active has become more political and recognized at the highest level. I think that those initiatives remain very important. So in part, as I said, in terms of uh, capacity building, but also bringing this dimension of security as part of the political conversation. I think that this is where the gap still exists and where the main challenges is that we very often still approach this agenda on a parallel track. Whereas what we need to do is to bring this as part of the core of the conversation in our business. This is part of the mediation discourse. This is part of the peace negotiations. So it's important, certainly, that women have their space, you know, you know, consultative bodies, advisory bodies. But at the same time, we need to have them sitting at the table and have everyone addressing and integrating a gender perspective. In the same way, we need to develop policies for gender equality, women, peace and security, but then find the ways to bring this conversation across all the work that we do. And I think that those initiatives are very relevant to make everyone at all levels better understanding the need to address those topics and to provide women with the right space to have their voice heard. You touched on so many interesting points there, I think, because um, it's not just amazing to see that an initiative that was started as, you know, a civil society initiative can actually achieve such high levels of relevance and, and become so impactful. But also, you know, you spoke about actually training and making sure that we're bringing the right people to the table as well. It's not just about tokenistic diversity, but in my own time, I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of civil society, women activists, including, you know, Uyghur women or women from ethnic minorities in Afghanistan. A common trend that I noticed was that, you know, these women would tell me, I actually didn't choose this as my career as you did. You know, I, I studied myself and I, I, I chose to be in this space, whereas for them, it was almost like they had to do it because for one of them, their father has been imprisoned in a Xinjiang detention camp for 10 years. And so she has to advocate for him. For the other, it was because she had to flee Afghanistan when it fell back to the Taliban. And so while they are now incredible, incredible activists and play such a key role in their space, they still need so much support because they weren't trained to be activists and actually being the people who experienced the violence 
so personally becomes even harder to then do the advocacy and and sometimes being exposed to even more hate and, and more attacks because they're going against such you know powerful entities so yeah it is great to see that the, there are initiatives towards that on that that's very important because when those initiatives are are conducted from governmental level or international organizations i think in the past there was no recognition of those kind of challenges that women then face when they expose themselves. So as part of the pillars of the agenda, we, we know, as you mentioned at the beginning, is that we have the participation, but then we have the protection and the prevention. So many efforts were made to make sure that women could have their voice heard, creating those platforms, but not having enough uh, understanding that by doing so, we were exposing them to violence and, and risk and, uh, and life threatens. So I think that now we, we reach the point, you know, the, we acknowledge this. So we, we need to, while we support them in a more active participation, which is, I think, from my perspective, maybe the, the core of pillars of the, of the agenda, at the same time, we need, from a governmental or international organization perspective, provide also the, the protection that, it, that it's needed. We saw too many women being killed for being advocates, peace builders, or fleeing their countries and need to ask for asylum in, in other countries. I know many. And I think that this is a problem. And when we look at what happened in Afghanistan as well, I mean, women expose themselves, as, as you mentioned. Maybe it was not a choice initially, but they found themselves because things evolved in a certain way. And uh, we have the moral responsibility to uh, not let them down when uh, the things are getting complicated. Uh, this applies to Afghanistan, but in all conflict and, and war contexts, this is very relevant. And I think this is really a sense of this, uh, of this agenda. And it's very important that we remain connected with the reality, which is that this agenda was led by a grassroots uh, women's organization. Of course, then it has evolved with the time. And when I look at what I do now, which is very different what I was doing two years ago and in, in my previous capacity, the agenda at NATO has been translated and integrated on the NATO's mandate. And this is fine because we are defense institutions and this is what we need. If we want to defend the population, we need to do this with the right perspective and with the gender and inclusive approach. At the same time, we need to remain connected with uh, civil society and uh, to uh, remember that this is where the agenda comes from and this is the final objective, is to protect the population. So we need to do this in the right way and keep this dialogue and this channel open with a civil society representative. That's the perfect note that leads to my last question. You know, I, I do want to end on a positive note. And I think, you know, as, as you said, you're such an incredible advocate and an inspiration for, I'm sure, a lot of young women, for myself, obviously, because, you know, I, I, I do work in the space of security. But do you have any advice or is there anything you would say to young women who are listening and are thinking about a career in, in this space? Thank you for your words. And I think that being models is important. You cannot be what you cannot see. So for many women, not seeing role models, you know, in this field has had a, a big impact. I know that here in Australia, uh, there is a lot of work 
on that, that it's done to really portray women in this field. And I saw to this morning uh, the portrait and mirror galleries as Minister of Foreign Affairs and, and Trade. And I like this initiative very much because it's not that women don't exist, it's that, that we don't portray them enough. I do a lot of mentoring. I've done this a lot uh, throughout my organization-wise that I, I just mentioned. And because I think that we bear a responsibility when we reach a point in our career, in our life, when we are ready to stop and give back what we received. Maybe what we, what we earn. So what I often say is uh, don't stop dreaming if you follow your passion. That's extremely important. But then also think outside of the boxes. Uh, things do not come easily. We are not there yet. So it's very important to create the space that we need to then have this uh, uh, role we want to have in the society that we deserve. And also think that we are, we are not alone. The network that we are working and that we are building, our safety network. I like to think when I sit alone as a woman in a, in a room that I just only physically alone because all uh, other women are outside uh, that uh, physical space, uh, space are supporting me and encouraging me uh, in doing my work and achieve a common result. That's such a powerful image. It's just beautiful, beautiful to think that may maybe it is true that we will find ourselves still as being the only woman in the room every now and then, but what you know, the women before us do and, and what we can create as a collective becomes our strength after. So thank you so much again for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Finally, Daria speaks to Macarena Saez, Executive Director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. They explore the connection between national security and human rights, the current state of women's rights around the world, and discuss what Australia can do to promote women's rights on the global stage. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Macarena Saez, Executive Director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. Previously, she was Director of the Center for Human Rights and Humanitarian Law at American University of Washington College of Law. Macarena is an internationally recognized expert in gender, sexuality, family law, and human rights. Macarena, welcome to ASPI. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Daria. This is my pleasure. So, you know, I think some people might still wonder what the connection is there between a security think tank like ASPI that's very much focused on, you know, matters of defense and national security and a human rights organization like Human Rights Watch. But I think the importance of this connection becomes clearer and clearer every year, in particular, the intersection between human rights and the safety and security of our societies. Do you have any observations on that to get us started? Oh, absolutely. I think that it would be a mistake to think that these are separate things, because the problem also precisely with security is that you can't really even think about issues of security without understanding that a human rights framework for it, it is necessary. The thing that maybe distinct authoritarian regimes from right-respecting regimes, especially democracies, is precisely that you can deliver on issues of security 
without having to undermine uh, human rights. And when it comes to women's rights, that has also been sort of like a second layer of marginalization and uh, thinking that uh, women's rights are something completely different that uh, a specific group of people, women, will deal with and it's not connected with the rest. And I I think that that's a a huge mistake. Thanks for that. I I will now sort of dig a bit deeper into your area of focus, which is obviously women's rights. And I might kick off with a broad question. Would you be able to share your views on the current state of women's rights across the globe right now? Obviously, there are different situations and there is an idea of, of progress, but then sometimes you get boggled down into all this sad news coming from all sides of the globe, like both, you know, democratic societies, our own countries and authoritarian countries. So what is your sort of general assessment of the global state of women's rights at the moment? So I think that we can't be completely optimistic or happy at this moment, of course, but I think that we never should forget that progress is never linear. So, of course, you see some progress in some places and unfortunately, regressions, very serious regressions in other places as well. So on one hand, in the optimistic side, you have Latin America with a huge uh, advance on retroactive rights. And with countries that have uh, really set up incredibly good good standards, both in terms of Congress passing laws, as in Argentina, uh, allowing women to have access to safe and legal abortion uh, without restrictions for a number of weeks between 12 and 18. And then you have countries like in Mexico, where the Supreme Court of Mexico has give us really wonderful decisions that are grounded on human rights, uh, stating that women do have the right to have access to safe and legal abortion as well. And you also have uh, countries like Colombia that have also made uh, enormous progress. Chile uh, has done a little progress, but in, in terms of the region having a movement that it's looking forward in a way that is women-centered in their delivery of uh, retroactive rights, I think that Latin America is, is a good example of optimism. On the other hand, in the same area, you have the United States that has uh, regressed ter- terribly with a very awful decision by the Supreme Court on the Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade uh, a couple of years ago. And then state by state, the battleground of abortion has become extremely complicated. In other areas, the worst part of being a woman today is Afghanistan, no question about it. And what the Taliban has done to women and girls is just devastating. And it should be a concern for everyone around the world. And so the the regression that you see in in Afghanistan and the risk of normalizing the Taliban and normalizing what's happening to women and girls in Afghanistan is a serious concern. So it's not only what the Taliban have done to women and girls in terms of making them completely invisible as citizens, banning, there is no other country that bans uh, girls from uh, being educated with the banning of women going into public parks, the banning of most works for women and girls, the closing of all beauty salons, uh, which was the space for women to be able to gather. And it also took away 
uh, 60,000 plus jobs for women who worked in beauty salons. So it is a devastating uh, situation that it should be troubling for everyone. So I think the state of women's affairs around the world varies a lot, but we have specific places where it is concerning. And we also have places, as I said, that where is optimism. And we have places in between. What's going on in Iran with the protests is a sign of times that are changing. And uh, of course, it is also showing how concerning it is, the control over women by the Iranian government. But it also shows the protests that have not receded in a year. It's also a sign of optimism of women and men coming together and saying to governments, this is enough and we will not give up. I find it really fascinating to sort of looking at protest movements and how in Latin America, really women have managed to gather so much voice and so much recognition that, you know, the, the protests are now known worldwide as like, you know, not one less and also just like fighting against gender-based violence and all that. They've really become leaders in, in that space and and seeing, seeing that is in, incredibly inspiring and powerful. But then, you know, looking at the other side of sort of how protests have developed in Iran and, you know, being sparked by the death of a woman, Masa Amini, but also just how much more violence has then been, been brought to, to the protesters themselves. So, you know, obviously the different contexts bring different implications and the fight is always much harder in those places like Iran where even, you know, protesting puts you at so much risk? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can see it as a sign of optimism and also as a sign of concern, of course, that women are being repressed at larger numbers around the world. That comes also with the recognition of women's voices as public voices. And what we see in Iran, we also see it as well in Afghanistan, where women are being imprisoned, women are suffering from political persecution, and that is something that it should be of concern. I think that what it should be of most concern is that if if women keep being isolated as the ones who are fighting for our own rights, uh, because the issue of women's repression of rights is not only about women, it's about societies. It affects everyone. It affects families. It affects men. It affects everyone to the future. In countries where women and men share the responsibilities of having a a progress in the country, uh, those countries fare better than countries where women are lagged behind. It's not only the right thing to do in terms of protecting rights, but it's also efficient and, and it's necessary to advance women's rights and have women enjoy equal shares in terms of the workforce, enjoy economic rights, enjoy sexual and reproductive rights, and live in a world that it's free of uh, sexual and gender-based violence. So just to, to follow on, on you know, you, you started mentioning Afghanistan and, and the Taliban, to bring it back to what our governments can do in in that space. Uh, you know, there is a lot of debate around how, especially democratic governments, should look to engage with Afghanistan and the Taliban, or whether at all they should engage with them. It is surely an obligation of of countries like Australia, the United States, to encourage the Taliban to enable um, the women of, of Afghanistan to be educated 
and and not to lose all the economic and societal rights that they had gained over the past 20 years you know what would your advice be to democratic governments as they try to like keep supporting women of afghanistan more broadly people of afghanistan during this time so the first thing is i i think that we we are concerned about as i said of the normalization of the taliban that can lead to also creating this idea that the taliban are a legitimate government so that should not happen at the same time delivering in what is one of the worst if not the worst humanitarian crisis around the world uh, is also of concern. And there is no incompatibility there in terms of you don't have to legitimize a government to deliver on humanitarian aid. So that is something that has to be very clear, that governments must look for ways of supporting people on the ground while not engaging with the Taliban as if it was a legitimate government. That's the first thing. Second, I think that it is really necessary for women and girls in Afghanistan that uh, countries that understand the that women and girls must be recognized as equals engage in the international fora with the prioritization of what happens to Afghanistan. So in uh, multilateral conversations, in conversations within the United Nations as well, with if there are any bilateral conversations, the conditions that women and girls must be recognized, must be able to be educated, must have access to the workforce, should be part of the agenda. It should be a priority in the agenda of all countries. There are some efforts also to, and it is many organizations have already called on what the Taliban are doing to women and girls, uh, the crime of gender persecution. And so it is our findings are that what the Taliban are doing in Afghanistan amounts to the crime of gender persecution and other countries should understand that and what it would mean to engage with a country, with a government that commits the crime of gender persecution. There are also ways of engaging. There are initiatives in terms of whether there should be efforts by countries to engage within the International Court of Justice against Afghanistan. And I would invite democratic countries and democratic leaders to consider how they could really pressure the Taliban in that arena as well. And for the most part as well, I think that uh, many countries with really great intentions have been short on delivering their promise in terms of protecting women seeking asylum. And there are a few countries that have promised to provide asylum to Afghan women seeking asylum, Afghan women and girls, without any conditions, without asking for evidence of uh, persecution. And I think that that would be a very good model to follow. I think uh, countries should be all open to receiving women and girls from Afghanistan who want to uh, leave and can leave the country. And of course, this is not a solution. There is no solution where women, where you say, well, the solution is for women to leave their country. No woman, no woman, no one should be forced to leave their country, of course. But if uh, the conditions are as dire as they are now in Afghanistan and women and girls want to leave the country, they should be received with open arms by most countries, by all countries around the world. 
That is really, really crucial advice. I hope policymakers and leaders in, in our countries can hear clear and loud. I have a sort of follow-up question on that a little bit more specific to, to Australia. So, you, you know, you're, you're here at an interesting time because Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is, is preparing its international gender equality strategy. And we recently had conversations about it here at OSPI with the gender equality ambassador. So do you have any advice on, you know, what this strategy should look like, what it should aim to achieve both domestically and internationally, of course, and what role a country like Australia can play towards the protection and advancement of women's rights in the world? Yes, I think that the advancement of, uh, I mean, first of all, having a gender equality ambassador is something that I hope other countries also will replicate this wonderful model of Australia in that regard. In terms of the policy, I've, I've looked at the previous policy. I think it's exciting to have an opening forum also to bring ideas. And I think that that's a, a key that I also hope that other countries also replicate within the model is to listen to women in the country and to listen how uh, things should be designed with women at the table. There is always this risk of thinking that in order to obtain gender equality, the focus should be on protecting women as if women required special protection. What we need is the protecting of our rights and the right to autonomy. That's what we really need. And uh, that means to have women sitting at the table designing the strategies and the policies that will mostly impact women. And the understanding also that we are not one essentialized group. There's no such a thing as just women. Women have different experience, the lived experiences of, you know, women of color, indigenous women, women with disabilities, you know, women who are lesbian, queer women as well. It is important, trans women. We have different experiences that need to be understood from the different situations that women live. And I think that the key is to protect women's autonomy. And I hope that this new policy will also put women's autonomy at the forefront, even for women who may make decisions that we don't necessarily agree with. But it is important to understand that we are not uh, objects of protection. We are subjects of rights. And uh, we can only gain equality once that key component is understood, that we our autonomy needs to be protected. Thank you so much for that. I think that's really powerful. I do still have another question for you, even though that would be an amazing sentence to end on, but I will ask it regardless. So around a piece you wrote recently for Human Rights Watch about sort of the nexus between authoritarian governments and women's rights and how sort of the erosion of women's rights is often a red flag or, you know, like a bell ringing sort of warning us that the government is probably sliding towards authoritarianism, which, you know, I, I study authoritarianism a lot and that's just that nexus is, is just really interesting to me. So I was wondering if you wanted to expand a bit more on that. Yes, I think that that is something that 
we tend to forget. And I think that is a mistake to think that the problem of women's rights, it's a problem that is isolated and different from the problems of uh, protecting democracy or protecting right-respecting regimes. And the reason I say that is first because historically the trends when you can see around the world what happens is for authoritarian governments, there is usually this connection between being authoritarian and restricting women's rights. And I think that that happens in in different ways. One is because it might be popular to use concepts that look very nice for everyone. You know, nobody is against uh, family values. Nobody is against the right to family. Nobody is against parents, for example, and the right of parents to educate their children. So these are easy ideas to, to take on and say, what women are trying to do is trying to destroy our traditional values. But when you dig deeper what that means, you know, domestic violence was not even a thing that had a name for many years. And uh, that was the traditional family. The traditional family was a family where women were mostly trapped with abusers. And only recently, we, the legal systems have started to understand this. So I think that that connection needs to be put at, at the front of how we fight for democracy. The other thing that I think it happens with authoritarian regimes is that it's not only that the target of the discrimination are women, along with, for example, LGBT people, for example. But these are the first signs that an open democracy is about to be closing. Because from uh, restricting reproductive rights, for example, then you start restricting also freedom of expression and freedom of association of organizations that work on these issues. So then you start shutting down also, as I said, these organizations. And, and, and so there is a very tiny step between reducing women's rights to reducing everyone's rights in terms of public discourses and freedom of association or reducing the rights that can be fought in court. So I, I think that the connection between authoritarianism And restrictions of women's rights need to be more visible. We need to work more into understanding that, you know, around the world, if you see who are the people who are mostly obsessed with restricting women are not only obsessed with restricting women's rights. It is uh, something that is within sort of like a packet of really terrible news (laughs) that will sooner or later affect everyone. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, sort of fundamental if we want to try and actually prevent things from happening rather than having to be so reactive usually, you know, and just wait until the very bad things start happening with all the studies that have been done and like, you know, the research that the amazing research that comes out of Human Rights Watch as well. I think we we can tell now, like, what are the early signs of that erosion and, and we need to think about what we do to prevent it getting worse before we actually get there. Thank you, Macarena. Was there anything else you wanted our listeners to hear? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the important things that I would like to also reflect on is the issue of socioeconomic disparities for women. I think that uh, we shouldn't forget that women are the majority of the informal sectors, are the majority of the work on what it's now called the care economy, which is, uh, you know, the functions that uh, women have been subsidizing for years 
the world's economy through unpaid labor that needs to be recognized. And, and I think that any type of policies uh, designed to achieve gender equality should take into consideration how the advancement of the people who suffer more the situations of poverty and the ones who are in informal sectors. I think it's really great that Australia, for example, ratified Convention C-190 against violence and harassment in the workplace. I think it's a good starting point, and I hope that uh, Australia's new policies and laws to implement C-190 will reflect and will impact also informal sectors and the sectors of women who work in the care economy. Thank you. Thank you for adding that really important point. At the end, I'm sure they can also sort of go into informing our foreign policy and and foreign feminist policy. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Macarena. I hope all the best for Human Rights Watch and the team. Thank you, Zaria. This was a pleasure. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. Stay tuned for our final episode of the year, which will be released next week. Thanks for listening.